And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 22nd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, military spouses tell what life is like in the world of active duty. Plus, HUD moves against old-fashioned corruption flourishing in the Big Apple. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Intelligence Agency is working to fill gaps in its new artificial intelligence strategy. The agency plans to ensure what it calls a holistic approach to AI. The document is still classified, but the agency plans to release it soon. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got a preview from DIA's chief technology officer, Ramesh Menon. Artificial intelligence is a mega trend, and we, I'm pleased to announce that DIA has officially signed off on our first artificial intelligence strategy, and we looked across multiple pillars to ensure a holistic strategy, starting from people and skills, which is very essential for human-machine teaming, to understand the skills required for our workforce to effectively support our mission needs going forward, understand the role of digital platform, platforms and tools required to render these capabilities to our warfighters and policymakers across experimentation. So we continue to learn and evolve as we are in an era of strategic competition. We want United States to lead this in a responsible, ethical and fair manner. So given that we are looking at it holistically, we are doing it in a very collaborative manner. And our goal is to operationalize the strategy. And we are working across different areas, like I mentioned, uh, to ensure we have sustainable strategic capabilities for the country. Right? That's our primary goal, to get the intelligence advantage and effects the country needs. And the strategy is classified, correct? There is a, yeah, currently it's a classified strategy, but we are working to release it uh, with an unclassified version. Is there a timeline on that? Uh, I think my team is working on it. It's through the public affairs. It's the very, it's very minor changes, so we should be able to release it soon. And what about an implementation plan? Is there going to be an implementation plan? Absolutely, right? And the whole goal of a strategy is to operationalize the strategy. And that would mean there's an implementation plan, although there are challenges like funding. We are currently in a continuing resolution. So nobody in federal government can start anything new until the federal government and Congress resolves the budget issue. So we hope that CR will be taken care of and we all can move on doing the right thing for the country here. Well, let me follow up on that. What would happen if we have to function under a year-long continuing resolution? So at least the way I understand is that no one can start anything new during a CR. So we can do what we're doing, but we cannot do anything new. So it does have impact from an economic perspective and from a capability perspective, depending on what we're trying to do. And you're working on the strategy and you're working on the implementation plan. What about the metrics? What metrics are you measuring yourself against? That's a very good, good, very good question. In fact, we are working very closely with DNI to establish a risk management framework. And those risk management frameworks will be used to build the metrics. So we are consistent across the community in how we measure and how clear metrics. So we are all we are measuring everyone on the same scale. That's the first important thing. And ODNI is leading that charge. And we are also working very closely with CDAO on that aspect. And could you elaborate on your work with CDAO? How do they enable what you do? So... 
the best thing I can tell about CDO is training. CDO has one of the best trainings in DOD. Uh, there are there are specialized training for flag officers and seniors. And we have partnered with academic institutions like MIT, Stanford, Johns Hopkins University. So we are truly, and CDO, not CDO is scaling the skills aspect of AI in a very positive manner. I'm extremely pleased and proud of the work CDO is doing on the AI training part. And you talked a lot about upscaling the workforce. Are there some initiatives that you're implementing to cultivate that workforce and kind of close the gap? Absolutely. We are working with our human resources team to work on a strategy for talent and skills as we operationalize AI. And it's a very essential and important pillar of our operationalization of AI strategy. Uh, do you have some numbers in terms of how many specialists you need and what the current gap is? Uh, we are working on it. I don't think we have any numbers yet. And just wanted to ask you a quick question about generative AI. Are you exploring it or are you planning on exploring it? And if there is a use case that you can talk about. So it, it's been a rapidly growing trend where everybody in the world is talking about it. So just like any other curious user, we are exploring, we are understanding both good and the bad and figuring out how best it can meet our mission needs. So we are in an early exploratory phase of this thing. And also, just very quickly switching gears, you're building out your zero trust environment. Where are you at with those efforts? I cannot talk about it, but that's an active and important strategy that our CIO is leading. Got it, got it. And what about investments? What are you focusing your investments on this year? Again, we are in continuing resolution, so I cannot talk about investments or budgets, but all I'm saying is we are committed to our mission as an all-source foundational military intelligence agency, and we are continuing to invest in our DSSCI network fabric, which is essential. So we will continue to do the right thing for the country and the agency, and we are pleased to have General Cruz on board as our new director, and we look forward to his leadership and guidance on this topic further. Yeah. And what are the next couple of months looking like for you? And what are some of long-term goals? So we are continuing to collaborate with our IC partners and DOD partners to ensure we validate the need and requirements so we can focus on truly foundational capabilities for the country. Yeah. Ramesh, thank you. Ramesh Menon, Chief Technology Officer at the Defense Intelligence Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, HUD moves against old-fashioned corruption flourishing in the Big Apple. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Dozens of current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority were arrested earlier this month. They've been slapped with federal charges of bribery and extortion for taking kickbacks from companies getting housing development contracts. The Housing and Urban Development's Office of Inspector General helped conduct the multi-agency investigation leading to those charges. IG Ray Oliver Davis joins me now with details. Ms. Davis, good to have you back. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate your interest in this case. And what was the nature of the case? It sounds like pretty old-fashioned bribery. We'll give you a contract, we get a kickback, and la-di-da. Exactly. It's it's uh, what you hear law enforcement call a pay-to-play scheme. And what we learned w was that superintendents throughout NYCHA were taking bribes in order to award contracts. These were what we call micro-purchase 
uh, micro, micro purchase contracts, meaning they were they were small repairs, uh, five to ten thousand dollars. So the superintendents had autonomy to award those contracts rather than compete them. But often they were asking for two, three, three thousand dollar bribes on the front end to award the contract. Sometimes people were having to pay bribes to keep the contract or even get the work signed off on the back end. So good old fashioned pay to play bribery. Although $3,000 kickback on something in the five dollars to $10,000 range doesn't seem like a real good deal for the uh, contractors, it's a wonder they agreed to it. You know, it's work, right? It, um, it, it gets you through the door, and it, and it gets you work, certainly. Or it shows how much profit there is in it, if you can still get away with whole and having paid a third of the thing away in bribes. Exactly. You know, we, we think with the current charges, we're looking at about $2 million in bribes collectively, I believe. Yeah, so enough to make a difference in the bribe taker's life, really. If there's even 70 of them, you know, it's still a pretty good sum there. And Absolutely. how did it come to light? Was it a whistleblower or what? You know, it's an ongoing investigation, so I want I want to be cautious about talking about how these charges came to light. Um, there certainly were allegations that, that it came forward, and we teamed up with the New York Department of Investigations, Homeland Security Investigations, DOL, OIG was involved. Um, luckily, we had the attention of the Southern District of New York, um, and and we went after went after these these individuals and investigated them, and it resulted in the arrest of seventy individuals um, collectively. Early morning, uh, seven hundred agents came in from all over the country to conduct these arrests. So it was really a quite large operation. And it sounds like a multi-location operation because. The way you describe the New York City Housing Authority, there's not one place where it all happens. No, that's right. And in fact, I was I went up that morning to be with my agents at headquarters and to monitor the teams as they were out in the field conducting the arrest. You know, some of these arrests took, took place at six o'clock in the morning at homes. Others were on site when people arrived for work and others were, frankly, at airports. Some people were in transit. Uh, so it was um, a very large law enforcement effort that and- resulted in these arrests. How high up the chain of command did the briberies go? Was it directors of local offices or was it pretty much those down on the day-to-day contracting and management area keeping the housing repaired? Well, you know, that's a good question. And and currently the charges are against 70 former and current superintendents. I say current. They're obviously not current now, but they were current at the time. Um, and the matter's ongoing and additional charges might be brought. That will be dependent upon our partners at DOJ. My HUD, OI, HUD OIG agents will certainly continue to support the investigation and they'll follow the facts where they take them. And a couple of background questions. Is New York City Housing Authority the biggest one that HUD deals with? It is. It's the largest housing authority. Um, It services about one in 17 New Yorkers. There are collectively about 500,000 New Yorkers that live there. So this had a huge impact on New York. And, you know, Tom, you ask about you know, the, the amount of the bribery, and we talked about the amount of the, the contracts. For me, this was really about the public trust, right? Uh, protecting trust in these programs as much as the money, certainly. Um, you know, I think this certainly had an impact on New York, but something of this scale will draw a reputational risk um, and a trust risk from the American taxpayers and beneficiaries throughout the country. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis, Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. And Just a basic question, why was this a federal matter? I'm presuming that most of the money originated with HUD as grants uh, to the New York City Housing Authority. Well, for us, um, certainly we we go where the HUD money takes us, and HUD spends about $2 billion a year 
at NYCHA. So that was that's easily uh, when we look in terms of high risk uh, to the programs, that's easily a place that we were going. And frankly, you know, as I announced an audit while we were up there at the day of the takedown, and we were already looking at NYCHA for this audit when the takedown started to come to fruition. But we backed off a bit because it was a covert operation to let that go forward. And now we're pushing forward with our audit. I was up uh, in New York yesterday for the entrance conference. So we'll be we'll be heading out with that. And the audit will cover what what? What was it you were planning to audit in the first place? So, again, looking across the HUD portfolio portfolio at risk and NYCHA being the largest public housing authority and a tremendous amount of money going there, um, we're looking to you know spend our resources in the riskiest parts. So we're looking at fraud risk management. And this is something that we've looked at department-wide at the very top within HUD. We're looking at um, is HUD specifically assessing the risk in their programs and are they mitigating that risk and are they continuing on in order to form an an anti-fraud culture at the department. We found that that HUD at the department level is really just starting out. They haven't conducted risk assessments within their own programs. Um, Consistently, we've heard from the department, either we don't see fraud in our programs or we think that that is a job for our grantees. Well, then that causes us to look at NYCHA because it is such a large program participant. So we're headed um, to look at them in terms of their own fraud risk management. It's basically the same thing. Are they assessing their risk? Are they continuing to get better with time? And are we ultimately, I think, producing this, what I'm going to call an ecosystem around the funding, where we have internal controls that are exceptionally strong, promoting anti-fraud culture, and we as law enforcement continue doing what we're doing to get the bad actors out of the program. And we just provide as much protection for the money and and the tenants as we can. You have a similar problem or analogous problem, let's say, to the Labor Department, which disperses money to state-operated unemployment fund systems where there's a lot of fraud and abuse and so forth. So it's kind of a recurring theme, federal money, state or local, municipally carried out programs, but ultimately there's still federal taxpayer dollars. Absolutely. Um, And we've made this fraud risk management a priority recommendation for the department. So we'll see what what what, what comes of this. Uh, the CEO was present yesterday at NYCHA and all of her top executives, and we had a very good dialogue. And we're going to go in and learn what they're already doing and then see if we can make recommendations for improvements. Presuming she keeps her job, who knows where this could go, but I won't ask you to speculate on that one. But what about the big contracts? I mean, you're talking small potatoes, just a lot of little bribes over a period of time for, you know, I don't know, replacing bathrooms or whatever they do for five or $10,000. And that must happen tens of thousands of times throughout the vast NYCHA system. But what about, say, contracts to build a new building or a major renovation that might be a multi-million dollar operation? You really got to watch that one where it might have slightly different and more subtle bribery mechanisms. Those are good questions. And I'm hoping that this audit work will reveal um, some of the controls that are in place there or the lack of controls. You know, at the meeting yesterday, the CEO had her uh, chief compliance officer present. And that's something that is new for NYCHA and comes on the heels of the monitor um, the monitor being in place back in 2019. So we'll be asking those questions. We'll be learning what they're doing for the larger contracts as well. And it strikes me, getting back to the specific case, that if they're taking two, $3,000 bribes and five and $10,000 contracts, there's a lot of maintenance potentially that just doesn't get done because the money is siphoned off. Well, that's a good question too. Now, my understanding with the current charges is that we don't necessarily have allegations that in these particular instances that repairs weren't being made. 
certainly living conditions are of the utmost important to us. And I'm sure that we'll be asking those questions along the way. Absolutely. Because you see these driving into New York, you know, you see these gigantic projects, 30-story buildings and 10 of them in a row. You really wonder what goes on inside of a vast complex like that. And, Tom, really, when we're talking about these micro-purchases, the reason the superintendents were given autonomy on the front end is so they could move quickly, so they could help improve conditions. That was the the policy and the theory around giving them their own um, – authority to award the contracts. But as we can see, people took advantage of that. So we'll be looking at that. Yeah, it's almost the equivalent of microcard purchases at the or credit card micro purchases at the federal level. You really need the diffusion of that authority because you can't have centralized management of every little tiny thing or it would come to a halt at the other extreme. Absolutely. You have to have a risk tolerance and you have to be on the lookout for bad actors at all times. Right. So if there's a poor culture of risk management and anti-fraud controls at that level, it's a good guess it could creep up to higher levels. And then next thing you know, you're talking real money. We'll see. Like I said, we ultimately want to have um, protection of the funds, deterrence, and protect the tenants. So we'll, we'll see where the audit takes us, certainly. All right. Sounds like a big job ahead of you. Ray Oliver Davis is Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the administration could deal with the Texas National Guard. But first, military spouses tell what life is like in the world of active duty. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Pentagon keeps tabs on the status and attitudes of military spouses. Its biannual survey asks about satisfaction with military life, finances, employment, and a list of other factors. For what leadership learns and how they use it, we have the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military, Community, and Family Policy, Patricia Barron. Ms. Barron, good to have you with us. Hello, Tom. I'm really excited to be with you today. All right. And the latest survey is out in the field, fair to say. Correct. It currently is being fielded, and we're hoping that many spouses have received it in the mail or are learning more about it. And is it, by the way, is it a mail survey that they fill out with a pen and pencil and mail back, or can they do it online? They can totally do it online, and there's also a QR code that we have that they can scan to make it really easy for them to do so. And give us a sense of the scope. I mean, how many military spouses are there? Probably most members have a spouse, I would think, or the majority. Well, more than half of our military service members are married. Therefore, we're looking at about 600,000 active duty military spouses. Wow. And what is your, historically, the return rate that you're getting, the participation rate in the survey? We actually did uh, pretty well the last time we fielded this. The percentage went up uh, a bit more than we have had in the previous iteration. So we're excited that we're going to be able to increase that percentage even more. So we're trying to get to about 25% return rate, which would be fantastic. Yeah, that's a really projectable sample if you get, you know, 150, 200,000 or so returns. Absolutely. And every single one of those returns tells a story and we are anxious to hear about it. And do you get a good geographical distribution? Because, you know, a spouse in Okinawa may have different concerns than a spouse in Paris Island. Absolutely. We send CONUS and OCONUS. And uh, I would also say that while you're taking the survey, you're able to tell us exactly where you are. 
Got it. And what do you ask, actually? What are some of the key questions? What's important to us is to really hear from our spouses about their current status of their satisfaction with military life. What types of things can we do to increase the quality of life that they're experiencing? And, you know, I'm a 30-year active duty spouse. I certainly grew up in the Army as an Army spouse. Currently have a daughter that's an active duty spouse and a veteran. And so the discussions that I have with many, many younger spouses are important to me. But having this survey fielded is, is the best way for the DOD to get responses back from the field. And we really use the information that we receive to, to look at our current quality of life programs and make adjustments as needed. And that brings up an interesting question. If the couple, if both spouses are in the military, are they both military spouses and therefore they can fill out the survey? You know, I have had active duty spouses, mostly females, tell me that they receive the survey in the mail. And so they're an active duty service member as well as an active duty spouse. So perhaps the answer is yes. Yeah. Interesting philosophical question, I guess, because they're a spouse and a military member and both sides are, both both of the couple. Give us a sample of the kind of learnings that you say received in the last round that were significant enough for, say, the Pentagon, the brass to wake up and look at this and maybe take action. The last time that this survey was fielded, we did, we did something really interesting. We asked two open-ended questions. And so we were able to receive qualitative data as well as quantitative data. To tell you the truth, those uh, open-ended questions gave us a lot of insight into the current status of, of how spouses were feeling about their military life. For the most part, I think that we heard that there was satisfaction with military life, but there were certainly some points of what I would say pain points. Childcare is always something that comes up, just not having enough childcare available to those spouses that want to be in the workforce. Speaking of workforce, you know, UPCS, so many times throughout your military spouse's career, that maintaining a career, finding employment can be very, very difficult. So we heard that loud and clear. We also heard an awful lot about work-life balance. That's something that, you know, young generation really values. And we took that into account. And so what have we done with Let's just take those three topics, for instance, when it comes to childcare, spouse employment, and work-life balance. Certainly with childcare, besides the uh, military construction bills that have come out that look at, you know, building new child development centers in the near future, we also need to look at the now. And one of the things that we realized was that we hadn't looked at the childcare workforce in a very long time, and we needed to see if we were competitive still with the childcare market. And we took a deep dive into that, came up with an awful lot of ideas on how how to better develop that workforce so that we can get the best people, you know, to come in entry level and then stay with us and hopefully, you know, grow with us into leadership positions. We're speaking with Patricia Barron. She's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military Community and Family Policy. And do go on. You were talking about some of the results and what the Pentagon has done about it. Exactly. So uh, as I mentioned, the child care uh, workforce development look, um, we're proud of looking into that and, and hopefully we'll see some great outcomes from that. The second thing that I would say is, uh, again, looking at military spouse employment, really excited about the military spouse career accelerator pilot, which is a fellowship that we're doing with industry where we are paying for 12 weeks of fellowship time with different businesses across the country. And we hope that at the end of those 12 weeks, military spouses will get offered 
with permanent positions. And that pilot is working out great. We're seeing close to 84%, 85% offering of permanent positions with those uh, industry partners. And it's going gangbusters. And we're in year two now. And uh, that's been received very, very well. We're learning a lot about the types of employment that spouses are looking for and the types of skill sets that industry partners are looking for. So that helps us as well. And then uh, I think I mentioned work-life balance. Uh, Where does the military community family policy come into play? Well, we own a military welfare and recreation policy, MWR policy. So I've asked our team to look at what opportunities are out there for families to get together when they do have time off. Are we looking at outdoor recreation? Are we are we doing more in that space or are we making it so that families can come together at certain places on the installation? I want to come back to the question of careers because one of the difficult challenges over the years has been licenses that don't transfer from state to state. In some sense, people that are, say, I'm making this up, computer programmers are more portable than someone that does manicures where you need a license from state to state that doesn't transfer. That's absolutely right. I myself, I'm a registered nurse, started out that way, and I have seven state licenses that I've gathered throughout my husband's 30-year career. Uh, And so we know that licensing, reciprocity, and portability is incredibly important. What ended up happening last year on the 5th of January, actually, I remember that because that was my anniversary day. The president signed the 5th of January. We had new legislation that basically asked the state to provide a license reciprocity to spouses uh, when they PCS into that state. Now, states are still uh, looking at what that means to them and how they're going to implement that law. But in the meantime, our Defense State Liaison Office uh, has done incredible work around interstate compacts for different career paths. And we see an awful lot of success there and hope for more success. And one of the issues other elements of the military have struggled with is the housing problem areas where the housing is substandard or contractors operate dumpy apartment buildings or or the military itself does. And then moving contracts, that can really be a bugaboo and they're having trouble getting that all redone through the contracting mechanisms. Does it ever get frustrating to see these things come up on the survey and yet you don't really control military housing or the moving contracts and so forth? How do you project the results to make sure that you can say, hey, brass, listen to this, look at this. I mean, you are brass, so maybe you're at the table. That's exactly right. What I would tell you is that we take all the information and we don't just keep it to ourselves. We share it with every one of our DOD colleagues that have skin in the game, equity, uh, the ability to make changes. And because of the survey results that we received on a lot of different issues, we're able to take it to uh, the different departments within the department, if you will, and give them a heads up that this is this is starting to really bubble up and we need to get very serious about look, looking into it. And we have. There's been an awful lot of new policies that have been put in place to get after the housing crisis, which, as you know, happened about four or five years ago. There's been a lot of work done around that. And when I go out and I visit with spouses at different installations, I ask specifically about how things are going in some of the areas that I'm not responsible for, just so I can bring back that updated information and share with my colleagues. And by the way, does the survey take data about gender and race and those kinds of things so that you can sift the data and attitudes according to different demographic pieces? Uh, We do in the demographic section of the survey, but we don't specifically ask about DEIA. No, but can you tell, say, whether women have greater issue with a particular topic than men or black people have a particular attitude toward a given parameter versus white people or Hispanic people, that kind of thing? 
I believe if we were to really parse out the demographic information and compare it to answers, obviously we everyone can be very uh, secure that their answers are private and um, and actually not anything that we can get back to and say, oh, this person said this thing. It's 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 a very secure survey in that respect. But overall, we can see if enough people have answered in a certain demographic, uh, we can kind of tell that there might be something that we can glean from those specific demographic categories. But I would say overall, uh, just to remind your audience and our fellow military spouses that that's why it's so important to take this survey. And so the survey can be found at dodsurveys.mil. I'll say that one more time, dodsurveys.mil. Because everything that you tell us is important. And the more of you that take it, the better we can look at different specific areas, as well as demographic areas to see where we can make some changes. Any other big topics we should know about? Yeah, this is a really good news story about some of the changes to policy and programs that we've done based on the results. One is the pet transportation policy that just went into place that allows for pets to be transferred during a PCS, and then also dependent care flexible spending account for our military families. Good to know that Thor the Labradoodle makes it to the new base. Patricia Barron is Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military Community and Family Policy. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Tom. And again, let me say dodsurveys.mil. The more we can get folks to take the survey, the better off we're going to all be so that we can increase quality of life for all our military families. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tune into the Federal Drive wherever you are. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the administration could deal with the Texas National Guard. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Can the federal government resolve a long-running dispute with the Texas National Guard? Should it? The Guard, under Governor Greg Abbott, has been running its own border protection operation, at times keeping Customs and Border Protection out of the way. For one view of the legalities here and what the federal government could do, we turn to the Council for Liberty and National Security at the Brennan Center for Justice, Joseph Nunn. Mr. Nunn, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And you're writing that the federal government or the Biden administration could take on this effort, but probably it's not a great idea. What's your thesis here, and should they do it in the first place? After all, Governor Abbott is keeping some of the migrant surge out with what he's been doing. Yeah, the issue here is really the president can take control of the Texas National Guard if he wants to. The question is not really one of lawfulness. It's a question of whether it would be appropriate. And the answer to that question is no. At this point, federalizing the Texas National Guard would be premature if you look at the intent behind the relevant law, the way it's been used in the past, and generally how we resolve these sorts of disputes between the states and the federal government in the United States. And what is the relevant law and how would it work? The law we're concerned with here is the Insurrection Act. Now, I will back up for a moment. There are a variety of statutes that allow the president to federalize the National Guard. Most of those are really concerned with what you might call the operational needs of the armed forces. Say we find ourselves in a large war and the Pentagon needs more troops or they need more of a particular kind of unit that the National Guard has. The president can federalize portions or all of the National Guard for those purposes. None of those statutes apply here. What we're looking at is really two statutes. 
One is the Insurrection Act. The other is a statute called 10 U.S.C. Section 12406. Section 1246 is a very strange statute. On the one hand, it seems to give the president a unilateral authority to federalize the National Guard. On the other hand, it requires orders for those purposes to be issued through the state governors. That is an odd construction on the part of Congress if we're talking about a unilateral presidential authority. What if the governor says no? I mean, you can imagine litigation flowing from that, but it's a strange statute. By contrast, the Insurrection Act, it's not ambiguous. And also, if you look at past practice, on those rare occasions when the president has needed to take away control of the National Guard from a misbehaving state governor, we might say, that's always been done through the Insurrection Act. So while the law is a little bit muddy when it comes to 12406, the safest assumption is that if President Biden wanted to federalize Texas National Guard and order them to stand down, he would have to do so through the Insurrection Act. And nowadays, insurrection has become a loaded word. You know, people have different interpretations of what was called an insurrection. Some people have been charged with insurrection. Some have not. But how is it insurrection if the Texas National Guard is simply doing what some might say CBP ought to be doing? They seem to be aiding the federal government here. So this is an instance where the Insurrection Act probably could have a better name. The Insurrection Act exists certainly to allow the president to deal with insurrections. When you when you have a rebellion against state or federal authority, think in the very early American history, the Whiskey Rebellion, but also the Civil War. The Insurrection Act exists for those circumstances. The Insurrection Act also serves to allow the president to deploy the military to enforce the law when civilian authorities are otherwise overwhelmed, when some sort of crisis is preventing civilian authorities from executing the law. It also allows the president to deploy the military to execute the law when a state is interfering with the execution of federal law in some way. So the classic example here is Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, when the governor of Arkansas was using the Arkansas National Guard to physically prevent the Little Rock Nine, nine black school children from entering Little Rock Central High School and integrating the school. And President Eisenhower famously invoked the Insurrection Act, federalized the Arkansas National Guard, ordered them to stand down, and also deployed the 101st Airborne Division to escort the children to school. So that scenario is what some people are imagining when they're calling on Biden to federalize Texas National Guard to stand down. The argument is that Texas is interfering with federal immigration enforcement and border security. We're speaking with Joseph Nunn. He's counsel for liberty and national security at the Brennan Center for Justice. But you are arguing against doing that now, against doing it at this time. What's your reasoning? I am arguing against it. And Little Rock is really a useful example for explaining that argument. The crucial difference between Little Rock and now is really twofold. The first thing is The governor of Arkansas in 1957 was using the National Guard to directly defy a federal court order. There was a a federal court order to integrate Little Rock Central High School immediately, not in a month, immediately. And the National Guard was deployed to physically stop that from happening. President Eisenhower waited until the federal judge had exhausted all of the options at his disposal that he would ordinarily use to see that his orders were enforced. He treated the Insurrection Act as a last resort in that sense. And also, and this is the second thing, in Little Rock, 
Eisenhower did not invoke the Insurrection Act until there was a clear and imminent threat of mob violence, that the specifically sort of anti-black mob violence targeting these nine school children. Eisenhower waited until he really had no other choice. He treated the Insurrection Act as a last resort, which is what he should do. That's not the situation we have in Texas. This is not Little Rock. A number of people pushing the Biden administration to federalize the Texas National Guard have pointed to the Supreme Court's recent order, but the Supreme Court has not actually ordered Texas to do anything. That's the order saying that CBP had the authority to cut the concertina wire. Precisely. All that the Supreme Court did was vacate the Fifth Circuit's injunction that was barring CBP from cutting that wire. As things stand, there's no court order for Texas to violate. CBP can cut through that wire. Texas, as it stands, is free to put the wire back up. If CBP wants to cut the wire and Texas wants to restring the wire right after the CBP agents walk through it, they can do that until there's a court order to the contrary. Or until one side gets sick and tired of it, I guess, I suppose, which is not a great yeah. way to run the or thing. Or one side runs out of money. So at what point would the administration then, do you feel, be justified in invoking the Insurrection Act? So I think there are a couple of scenarios. The first is going back to a court order. If we come to a situation where Governor Abbott is directing the Texas National Guard to defy a federal court order, then it becomes appropriate, I think, to invoke the Insurrection Act. That would fall in line with past historical practice and with the intent of the law. Or if Governor Abbott otherwise directs the Texas National Guard to do something that will not permit delay. For example, you know, to be clear, I don't think this is likely. If Governor Abbott were to instruct the Texas National Guard to try and arrest federal officials or occupy federal property, at that point, that, like defying a federal court order, becomes something that is fairly described as rebellion against the authority of the United States in the, in the terms of the Insurrection Act. That would be like and it would become shelling to Fort them. Sumter or something. Yes. None of that is likely to happen. So it seems like there's just going to be this standoff for a while. I, I think that's right. And I think that underlines one point that I think is really important here, which is there's a lot of room left to litigate here. In the United States, when states and the federal government disagree, they solve those disputes in court whenever possible. Up until quite recently, the Biden administration has not aggressively asserted the federal government's prerogatives in federal court. There has not been a lot of litigation coming from the Biden administration. If the Biden administration were to you know, jump directly from doing very little to straight to the Insurrection Act, that would be inappropriate. There is an enormous amount of room still here to resolve this through the courts, which is what the states and the federal government do in a country that has the rule of law. Joseph Nunn is counsel for Liberty and National Security at the Brennan Center for Justice. Interesting thinking. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his essay on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. But first, bargaining unit employees at the Social Security Administration see what the IRS is doing with a sudden windfall of modernization funds. They want the same thing for their agency. The American Federation of Government Employees wants Congress specifically to give SSA $20 billion in multi-year funding to increase staffing and update technology. 
Federal News Network's Jory Heckman got more from the AFGE Council 215 Chief Negotiator, Rich Couture. We represent 44,500 SSA employees, field offices, hearing offices, headquarters, payment centers, regional offices, offices of quality review, data operations center. I believe I got all the components. All over the country, and we have representatives here in D.C. from all over the country advocating for a fully funded annual budget for us to say in order for us to tread water with our overwhelming workload demands. Uh, More and more work keeps getting dumped on fewer and fewer employees, which is creating a lot of of stress for those workers. When you combine that with our lack of competitive pay and benefits, it is inducing a lot of our workers to leave either through retiring earlier than they would would have planned or to find uh, work with other federal agencies or with other employers uh, where the pay, the benefits, the telework are better. And so in addition to full funding annually, we are seeking a $20 billion supplemental funding package, very similar to what the IRS got under the Inflation Reduction Act. It would work out to $2 billion a year over 10 years uh, to deal with a lot of those issues, to address our staffing shortage, which has declined precipitously since 2010, even though our beneficiary numbers have risen by 17% since then, as well as to deal with a lot of the pay and competitiveness issues that I just discussed. So we believe that our approach is reasonable. Uh, We believe our our approach is actually fiscally responsible. When we consider that SSA is sitting on $23 billion in overpayments, benefits that should not have been paid out for a variety of reasons, we assert that those overpayments are caused by understaffing. Uh, We believe that Claimants have generally timely, poor changes in their circumstances that would lead to changes in benefit payments or benefit eligibility, and we simply do not have the people to stay on top of those changes timely uh, to make sure that they're getting paid the right amount at the right time. So $20 billion versus $23 billion seems like very easy math to us in terms of what we can prevent in terms of uh, improper payments going forward and to avoid a lot of the public relations disaster that SSA has seen recently due to some unfortunate press with respect to that overpayment crisis. So we're deficit neutral. Uh, Our administrative expenses come out of FICA contributions, so we're not coming out of the general revenue. We believe that this is what we need in order to put our agency back on track and to provide the American public with the service that they deserve. And Richard, you were mentioning about the staffing situation, how staffing has been going down over the past couple of years. Do you have a ballpark estimate of where you guys stand with staffing relative to the past couple of years? It was a small influx of staff last year. Uh, There was some additional money that was made available for FY23 to address some staffing. I believe that we ended up with a net increase of 3,000, but we lost a significant number of employees, and I can't remember the number off the top of my head. But what I can tell you for sure is that in FY22, we lost nationwide 10.5% of our staff. In FY23, we lost 8.5% of our staff, and year-to-date, it is the same figure. Fiscal year-to-date is the same figure. We are losing employees to other agencies. We are losing employees to other employers or to retirement. And every time an employee walks out the door, that means members of the public are going to wait longer on the phone to speak with one of our workers. They're going to wait longer for a claims decision. They're going to wait longer for a hearing. And none of that is right. The American public deserves better. 
And you were mentioning the $20 billion proposal. Would that function much like what we saw with the IRS, like a multi-year fund where this is something that would be not just any one annual appropriations year, but spread out across a period of time? Correct. It's supplemental. So it's intended to be on top of what we would like to see as full funding annually for the agency, uh, $20 billion over 10 years, so $2 billion a year for these dedicated purposes, increasing our staffing, making sure that we are uh, properly staffed, making sure that we are paying people commensurate with the level of responsibility that they have been assigned, you know, the, the work that they perform, uh, benefits so that we are on a level playing field with other federal agencies and other employers and other sectors, uh, as well as dealing with our outdated and obsolete information technology, which exacerbates a lot of those service delivery problems, uh, as well as shoring up uh, security measures, particularly at our field offices where our employees, uh, you know, subject to, uh, you know, they're subject to, to harm. And there isn't adequate protection in place to prevent that from happening, particularly in these, you know, heightened times of sensitivity. Yeah. And to go back to the overpayments, I mean, I think the message there is that more funding, more staffing leads to fewer mistakes, leads to better service. Obviously, might be a question better suited for management. But where do things stand with collecting those overpayments, clawing back that money that was not supposed to go out in the first place? So I know that the agency is reviewing the overpayment situation, particularly in light of press coverage and committee uh, committee hearings that were held on the issue. Uh, so I can't really answer that question in terms of what steps SSA is planning on taking. I imagine at some point there will be some consultation with the union on some of those measures since it will be our employees who will have to implement them. But, you know, the important thing is, is that that $23 billion was preventable, could have been prevented if we had enough people to process the work timely which is what the public deserves. And so to prevent the next $23 billion from happening, we need more people in our offices now and on a sustained basis going forward the next 10 years. And finally, Rich, we heard recently from Administrator O'Malley the return to office expectations are higher than they used to be. Obviously, a lot of pieces of the puzzle when you talked about workforce satisfaction, but how does that fit into everything? So AFGE is still seeking information from the agency about the full scope of the recent um, telework decision for headquarters employees and regional office employees. You know, the understanding that AFG had with respect to the changes that the commissioner made was that he wanted leaders to be present in the offices. Um, He wanted to have senior executives, senior managers, as well as their support staff on site to aid in core collaboration activities. And so we need to ascertain the full scope of the employees covered by that decision and to make sure that their interests are being advanced with the agency uh, in order to fit the stated purpose of the telework changes. Uh, Until we receive that information, we really don't have any other comment beyond that. Yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. Rich Couture, Chief Negotiator for AFGE Council 215, representing Social Security employees. He was speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.